A short 103 miles off the coast of Key West, Florida, is the island of Cuba. It's the largest Caribbean island, but it's really not much of a large landmass. It's roughly just the size of the state of California. How could such a beautiful, small island that drinks such good rum and smokes such good cigars be the same place that gave birth to the idea of a sonic weapon? A weapon with such advanced capabilities and accuracy that it can target individuals without notice. How did the island of Cuba create something that has not been reported in use anywhere else on the globe? What does Cuba know that we don't? To even start to answer that question, we must look to our history. What could have been the events between America and Cuba that started this idea of a sonic weapon? We need to attempt to understand how such a seemingly idyllic, lovely island could actually drive America mad. I'm Marie Mayhew, and thank you for listening to Whatever Remains. This episode, Elimination by Illumination. While seemingly more inconsequential in the 21st century, Cuba has always proven to wield a substantial amount of influence and anxiety on the United States. The Miami Herald wrote in 2014, the most popular analogy used to describe Fidel Castro's turning Cuba into communism's only bastion in the Western Hemisphere in 1959 was cancer. And the fear, to carry the analogy further, was that it would metastasize everywhere. From the beginning, the so-called cancer, Cuba's communist regime and their close ties with Russia, escalated into a series of heated geopolitical events between the United States and Cuba in the early 60s. Just 203 miles from Florida, Cuba intertwined with Russia, all within military striking distance. The Cold War never would alleviate these fears. It would only embed them deeper into the minds in Washington, D.C., and into the mind of the newly elected president, John F. Kennedy. Only three months into his first term of office, John F. Kennedy aimed at ridding the Western Hemisphere of this perceived cancer. Carried over from the previous administration, JFK authorized a plan to overthrow the Castro regime and establish a more American-friendly, capitalist-tolerant government in its stead. April 1961, the Kennedy administration would attempt this overthrow. This would be a covert mission, but an invasion nonetheless. A 1,400-man tactical force would disembark at night to come ashore at the Bay of Pigs, under the cover of darkness. This vividly named site of the surprise attack was a remote, swampy area on the southern coast of Cuba, where a night landing might bring forces ashore undetected. There were also plans for paratroopers to be dropped in advance of the invasion to disrupt transportation and to repel oncoming Cuban forces. Unfortunately, the landing site also left the invading force relatively stranded, more than 80 miles inland in a mountainous area. The only planes authorized for use in this assault, eight obsolete World War II B-26 bombers 
missed many of their intended targets and led the ground troops drawing heavy fire along the beaches of the Bay of Pigs. Cuban planes strafed the invaders, sank two escort ships, and destroyed half of the exiles' air support. Bad weather hampered the ground forces, which had to work with soggy equipment and insufficient ammunitions. The invasion was a failure, and Kennedy called off the second wave of attacks. My own father, 22 years old at the time, was one of the 101st Airborne paratroopers that was slated for deployment in the second wave of the Bay of Pigs attack. Our family jokes about his seemingly supernatural predilection to get himself into bad situations, but even he marvels at how scared he was, jumping out of a plane in the dead of night into a country that he had little if no real knowledge of with only a rifle. He wasn't even sure if the Cubans spoke Spanish. He only knew that he didn't, which would make for some interesting conversations, provided he even landed alive. The Bay of Pigs invasion was considered a grave error by this new administration. The strain of this miscalculation had lasting effects on both the Kennedy brothers, both John and Robert, although in very different ways. John F. Kennedy had been in office less than three months, and he was faced with a failure of momentous proportions. The mood amongst the president's men in the cabinet ranged from despair to fury. Bobby was amongst the most emotional. As the president rose from his seat, Robert Kennedy clasped his brother on the shoulder and pleaded, you've got to do something. They can't do this to you. The president turned away and walked into the Rose Garden. For about an hour, he paced in the wet grass. Later, the same night as the failed attack, Robert Kennedy composed a memo to his brother. RFK's first attempt at formulating foreign policy, the memo is revealing of his best and worst instincts. The document, hastily dictated sometime in the early morning hours and revised in Kennedy's nearly illegible scrawl, is a template for his future thinking. The United States cannot return to the status quo of waiting and hoping for good luck, he wrote. Something forceful and determined must be done. An invasion by U.S. troops was going too far, but some kind of covert action was called for. He suggested staging a provocation. Pretend that Cuban MiGs had attacked Guantanamo, the naval base at the tip of Cuba still held by the Americans. Kennedy was to return to this idea of a stage provocation repeatedly in the years ahead. My idea is to stir things up on the island with espionage, sabotage, general disorder, run and operated by Cubans themselves with every group but Batistes and communists. Do not know if we will be successful in overthrowing Castro, but we have nothing to lose in my estimate. Within RFK's notes to his brother, we can start to see the dark seeds that would soon bloom into poison cigars, exploding seashells, the botulism-infected diving suit, a disregard for the population of Cuba, an oversimplification of what regime change would take, all the extreme and elaborate measures that the CIA would be brewing in the laboratories soon to come. January 19, 1962, in a pep talk to the team, RFK called deposing Castro. The top priority of the U.S. government, all else is secondary. No time, money, effort, or manpower is to be spared. RFK went further and declared, We will take action against Castro. 
It might be tomorrow, it might be in five days or ten days or not for months, but it will come. But this time, there would be no overt military invasion. No paratroopers or nighttime beach landings. RFK's plan was a small, special operation to corrode the Castro regime from within. Its code name, Project Mongoose, the first true American spy mission against Castro. And RFK chose a man by the name of Edward Lansdale to lead it. Somewhat like Fidel Castro, Edward Lansdale was a man who had a great amount of mythos that surrounded his life. It is believed that he was the inspiration for Alden Pyle, the title character in Graham Greene's novel, The Quiet American. Without this becoming too much of a literature class, Greene's book, The Quiet American, is largely a character study about a studious, intelligent CIA operative whose idealism and patriotism overshadows his actual practical experience. His will to do good makes him a demagogue. If Edward Lansdale really was the quiet American, it's debatable. He was widely perceived as an ugly American, full of confidence that he had every right to make the world in his own image and utterly blind to his own cultural condescension. This is the Lansdale who would use any conceivable gimmick to serve U.S. aims, from rigging elections to sugaring communist gas tanks. But also, interestingly, he was also reported as being genuinely respectful of the cultures he encounters, open to differences and new possibilities, and willing to tailor the American interests to third world needs. No matter how those differences could ever be reconciled, you, dear listeners, should already be questioning Robert Kennedy's choice for putting him in charge of an operation to overthrow an entire island. And it stands to reason that to achieve anything of this magnitude, you need to be able to inspire trust in people. Lansdale had to rely on the CIA, the U.S. Information Agency, the Department of Defense, to voluntarily cooperate with him. Given the level of skepticism within the CIA and the State Department towards Project Mongoose in general, and to Lansdale in particular, this would not be easily achieved. It was the most frustrating damn thing I've ever tackled, Lansdale wrote two years later. Most of these were state and CIA folks who made it plain to me that they hated my guts. So about once a week, I would formally request relief from this duty and be told that this was unacceptable. There would be no walking away from Operation Mongoose for Edward Lansdale. No relief from the pressure of trying to remedy the failed outcome of the Bay of Pigs. At meeting after meeting, the president's younger brothers stressed that there had to be maximum effort and that there would be no acceptable alibis for failure. Let's get the hell on with it, he would say. The president wants some action right now. His performance at Mongoose meetings reminded the CIA deputy director, Marshall Carter, of, and I quote, the gnawing of an engaged rat terrier. Lansdale and the CIA spent around $100 million on Operation Mongoose, with only one single directive. Get rid of Castro and the Castro regime. Executive officer of the CIA team charged with carrying out Operation Mongoose described his orders as, And when I asked, what does get rid of mean? I was told, Sam, use your imagination. That was it. Now what does that mean? Throw him in the ash can? Kill him? Or what? 
As mentioned in episode one, the plots that Lansdale and the CIA would propose definitely could be called imaginative. One additional CIA plan that came in front of the Senate's Church Committee in 1975 came from the testimony of CIA veteran Thomas Parrott, the deputy chief of the Soviet Division of Clandestine Services, the unit of CIA. Parrott recalls, I'll give you one example. He had a wonderful plan for getting rid of Castro. This plan consisted of spreading the word that the second coming of Christ was imminent and that Christ was against Castro. He was anti-Christ. And you would spread this word around Cuba and then on whatever date it was, that there would be a manifestation of this thing. And at that time, this is absolutely true. And at that time, there would be an American submarine which would surface just over the horizon off of Cuba and send up some star shells. And this would be the manifestation of the second coming and Castro would be overthrown in favor of religion. Well, some wag called this operation. By this time, Lansdale was something of a joke in many quarters and somebody dubbed this elimination by illumination. This testimony left the Senate committee incredulous and rightfully so. To think that an island of 11 million people would believe a second coming in the form of fireworks coming off of a submarine, strains rational thought even before taking into account the colonial and racial implications. But such was the foundation of Operation Mongoose. Robert Kennedy's relentless pushing to be rid of Castro, Lansdale and the CIA's more and more extreme plots to make it happen, millions of dollars in intelligence being squandered, all this intensity and focus being honed in on one small island just 103 miles from American shores. The Kennedy administration's covert war on Castro raged on, but in Cuba, nothing changed. If anything, Castro and his legend was fortified by these efforts. He had too much support in Cuba to be overthrown, and now he had the perception of having held his ground against the imperialist American regime, that was supposedly their military superior. National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy thought that the only two options were another invasion, which the president had ruled out, or learning to live with Castro. It is troubling to start to wrap your head around the lengths that JFK would consider to try and stop Cuba, including fabricating an active war. But then the fears felt by the new president became much more... Dyer. July of 1962, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev reached a secret agreement with Fidel Castro. The Soviet Union would install nuclear missiles in Cuba to deter and protect against any future invasion attempts by the United States. They would also construct missile silos beginning in late summer. In October, a U.S. U-2 aircraft took several pictures clearly showing sites for medium-range and intermediate-range ballistic nuclear missiles under construction in Cuba. The realization that the Soviets, in accord with Cuba, would have nuclear strike capabilities in such close proximity to the United States was exactly what JFK feared and had tried to prevent from happening. Not only had two of his prior attempts to minimize Cuba failed completely, but now it seems that they may have worked to hasten the military buildup. These images of the missile bases were presented to the White House on the following day. President Kennedy assembled a group of advisors to discuss 
what this act would mean for the American and Cuban people, and what action they would take. This group, called XCOM, was initially composed of 16 members, including his brother, the Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara, Secretary of State Dean Rusk, Undersecretary of State George Ball, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Maxwell Taylor. Over the course of what was to become known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, the XCOM committee members were divided, inconsistent, often confused, and appropriately frightened. The seriousness of the encounter that they embarked upon and their lack of confidence that any proposed strategy would accomplish their goal led most of them initially to favor some type of military action, to strike, as it were, like cornered animals. We know these details of their intent and the actions because several months earlier, Kennedy had directed the Secret Service to install a recording system in the Oval Office and the Cabinet Room, the location where the majority of the XCOM's meetings took place. All of it, or at least the majority of it, is on tape. By October 22nd, XCOM offers the President two possible courses of action. One, an airstrike and an invasion. The other, a full naval embargo or quarantine against all Soviet ships making any attempt to enter the waters near Cuba. That night, JFK writes Khrushchev to inform him that America will take action to stop the arming of Cuba. He then addresses the nation that there is absolute evidence of Soviet missiles in Cuba and calls for their immediate removal. He also announces the latter recommendation from XCOM, an immediate naval quarantine around the island until the Soviet Union agrees to dismantle the missile sites and to make certain that no additional missiles are shipped to Cuba. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Additional sites not yet completed appear to be designed for intermediate range ballistic missiles capable of traveling more than twice as far and thus capable of striking most of the major cities in the Western Hemisphere, ranging as far north as Hudson's Bay, Canada, and as far south as Lima, Peru. In addition, jet bombers capable of carrying nuclear weapons are now being uncrated and assembled in Cuba, while the necessary air bases are being prepared. Our policy has been one of patience and restraint, as befits a peaceful and powerful nation which leads a worldwide alliance. We have been determined not to be diverted from our central concerns by mere irritants and fanatics. But now further action is required, and it is underway, and these actions may only be the beginning. We will not prematurely or unnecessarily risk the course of worldwide nuclear war in which even the fruits of victory would be ashes in our mouth. But neither will we shrink from that risk 
at any time it must be faced. While this option is clearly the more prudent sane of the two, it is still a perceivable prelude to war. Within hours of Kennedy addressing the nation, the Strategic Air Command went to DEFCON 2, the highest level of U.S. force readiness short of a decision to go to war. By October 24th of 62, the military had 1,438 bombers, 145 missiles, and about 2,900 nuclear weapons ready for immediate strike against Soviet targets. While most of the bombers were ground alert, 65 nuclear-armed bombers were in the air at any given moment and were prepared to deploy Atlas and Titan missiles. Known as One Minute to Midnight, or the more commonly used Doomsday Clock, this was not some drill or hypothetical scenario. It was, in all truth, the closest that America has ever come to a full-scale nuclear global annihilation. That October, we came as close as we ever have to wiping out the world, all because of one small island. Clearly, and thankfully, dear listener, that didn't happen. JFK and Khrushchev were able to make a compromise. The U.S. promised not to invade Cuba, and Khrushchev promised to withdraw the missiles. But Khrushchev labored under no misgivings about what started this countdown. In a letter to JFK, he writes, You said once that the United States was not preparing for an invasion. It is also not a secret to anyone that the threat of armed attack, aggression, has constantly hung and continues to hang over Cuba. It was only this which impelled us to respond to the request of the Cuban government to furnish it aid for strengthening of the defensive capabilities of this country. Khrushchev recognized this crisis for what it truly was, and strangely enough, on this singular, essential point, the Soviet Union and the U.S. were completely aligned. When discussing their very limited options, the members of XCOM realized that while a militarized Cuba was less than optimal, the more significant danger for America, or more specifically, for the Kennedy administration, was purely political. Later, in a 1987 interview, McNamara would still hold the same opinion on the significance of the missile crisis. You have to remember that, right from the beginning, it was President Kennedy who said that it was politically unacceptable for us to leave those missile sites alone. He didn't say militarily. He said politically. The invasion followed with sabotage, paramilitary assaults, and assassination attempts the largest clandestine operation in the history of the CIA at the time, all led to the political necessity to rid Cuba of missiles without backing down. As the State Department's Director of Intelligence and Research, Robert Hillman, later put it, the United States may not have been in great mortal danger, but the administration certainly was. There was one player, however, that would not necessarily reach the same accord as the United States and Russia. Fidel Castro would not have anyone crowd the plate. In a letter to Khrushchev, he simply put, Dear Comrade Khrushchev, Given the analysis of the situation and the reports that have reached us, 
We are considering attack to be almost imminent within the next 24 to 72 hours. There are two possible variants. The first and most probable one is an air attack against certain objectives with the limited aim of destroying them. The second, and though less probable, still possible, is a full invasion. I believe that the imperialists' aggressiveness makes them extremely dangerous, and if they manage to carry out an invasion of Cuba, a brutal act in violation of universal and moral laws, then that would be the moment to eliminate this danger forever, in an act of the most legitimate self-defense. However harsh and terrible the solution, there would be no other. Nuclear war was avoided, but during this relatively brief period, lasting routes took place. What was one new administration's flawed policies would cement into the language that we spoke about Cuba for the next five decades? What was impossible, even laughable schemes like elimination by illumination became historical facts. Imperialist America would always work to undermine Cuba and would even jeopardize the safety of its people for its own political means. And in turn, Cuba would never flinch. While the doomsday clock stopped ticking, some other measure of time escaped its gears and cogs and silently started to grow. All from these few years of conflict, all on one small island, just 103 miles from Florida. Thank you for listening to the Whatever Remains podcast. I'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, The Lasting Legacy of Harrison and Abramoff. You can find us at whateverremainspodcast.com or on Twitter at whateverremainspodcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite shows. Our sound editing by Michael Buchanan. Our theme is by Group Rhoda. The Whatever Remains logo is by the very talented Desdemona. Additional voice talents by Sam I Hate Goats Fredrickson and Forrest, the Keeper of the Owls Burgess. This has been a Dammit Chippy production. Keep listening, won't you? <laughs>